This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. I want to start today by just welcoming all of you to Doing Translational Research, which is a broadcast that's sponsored by the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Um, I'm here with my good friend, Andrew V. Papakristos. Does the V stand for Voldemort, Andy? Yeah, it does not stand for Voldemort. Okay. Um, I, I'm your usual host, Chris Wildeman, um, director of the Bronfenbrenner Center. And by the time this podcast posts, I will no longer be an employee of Cornell University, having moved to Duke. Um, and so for all of you affiliated with the Bronfenbrenner Center, I just wanted to start by saying that directing the BCTR has been the greatest professional privilege of my career. Um, and Andy, to turn to you, being friends with you has been the second greatest professional privilege of my career. So uh, why don't you tell us where you are now and then give us a little bit of a sense of sort of your academic trajectory. And if you're comfortable with it, kind of going back all the way to your upbringing, just because I think in your case, it's pretty relevant for what you study. So this is not a great introduction, but let's just go with it. Well, all right. That's totally fine. Thanks, Chris. And uh, of course, now I'm going to change my view to Voldemort uh, just, just to honor this last podcast of yours. Um, so I'll, I'll give you the short version of that long question or long history, which is, so I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, my folks were, were immigrants and kind of went from Greece to uh, Chicago in a particular neighborhood. And uh, I grew up sort of in the height of actually Chicago's homicide epidemics. So I'm in my mid-40s now which means in the, in the 90s, I was in high school. And without going into too many details, you know, my family was, was pretty deeply impacted by gun violence and gang violence uh, during that time period. And so since neither of my folks went to school and they worked in the restaurant, which is, of course, what you do if you're Greek, um, they knew my sister and I had to go to college. The idea was we would get a job. We would do something. We could, you go to college, you get a job. That's the plan. And my sister became a teacher and been a teacher in the Chicago public schools for 20 some odd years. And I was looking into careers and I was always very interested in sort of the law and law enforcement and criminal justice and gun violence and thought I was going to kind of go as a career as a lawyer or a cop. Um, I went to Loyola University in Chicago, which turns out was in the neighborhood I grew up in. So I, I literally went about six blocks to college uh, and kind of started studying criminal justice uh, and education, thinking I would either be a teacher or a cop. And then kind of fell into research uh, by accident, which was as I was exploring this idea of being a teacher, um, I didn't know what I was going to teach. I had seen Dead Poets Society, so I was like, I guess I'm going to teach English because that's where <laughs> inspirational teaching happened. And I really loved my high school English teachers. Uh, and it turns out that being a real teacher is extremely hard, like really hard. Uh, but a college professor, his name was David Struckoff, he's a criminal justice professor, said, well, why don't, I, why don't you teach what you're interested in, what you love. Uh, I want to, you know, teach about crime and do stuff on violence. And I, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what a PhD was. Um, and we started talking about it. And I, I did some research with him, basic research assistantship. And then Loyola had a really cool center, which still exists, called CURL, the Center for Urban Research and Learning. And this is, again, in the, in the mid to late 90s. But this was what we would call engaged kind of community research, 
where researchers were embedded in community groups. We were doing surveys of housing residents. We were working on issues around defensible space and violence. And we were working with graduate students and faculty. And I saw a, a version of research pretty early on that could be embedded into policy and action, right? So I, of course, loved all the old sociology on the Chicago School because those were the neighborhood and city I knew. But I also really liked seeing it in action at the time, what was these cutting-edge problems that were going on in Chicago. The housing projects were still standing. Crime was still high. And so I kind of got into to research that way. Um, I applied to graduate school. Uh, I got rejected from graduate schools and um, actually got into a master's program. Uh, and I had a job offer to be a cop. And I had a job offer or an, uh, an offer to go to graduate school. And I deferred the, the offer to be a cop and, and went to the University of Chicago for a terminal master's program, which is also where I met my partner. Been together for 22 years, which is, you know, so there's many good things that happened from that. And when I was at the University of Chicago, I kind of fell in love with big ideas, fell in love with this idea of using data to really get at these sorts of problems that I saw around me. Um, went to work in the professional research world at App Associates, uh, very different topics afterwards, and eventually went back to graduate school in sociology at the University of Chicago, got into graduate school that time. Uh, I had to take the GRE about four times for anybody who's listening. <laughs> um, the first time I probably could have literally just put my name on the test and um, been fine. Uh, and then it finally took a took a class how to prep. I, I'm horrible at standardized tests. I had great grades, but um, was horrible at standardized tests. Uh, but got into graduate school, of course, the second time around. And during graduate school, you know, explored lots of different methods. I uh, was actually trained as an ethnographer and kind of got to network analysis, uh, a lot of the stuff I do these days sort of by accident, through actually an embedded project uh, with the violence prevention group um, where people were asking, you know, who's going to get shot? And they didn't want the standard answer to that question, which was like, look, well, young black men between 18 and 32, are it's elevated. they wanted to know, like, who, who's going to get shot? Um, and so we started kind of piecing together the social networks of these folks that were, were getting shot using administrative data, using focus groups, and that kind of led to sort of the later academic work. Um, so that's the, that's the, you know, four minute version of the history, Chris. That was six minutes and 15 seconds, but okay, sure. Well, <laughs> there was an intro there. That's true. That's true. I did ramble on for a little bit at the beginning. So, okay. that That's great. And I think it's helpful to, yeah, your trajectory is um, such an interesting one that I think it's nice for folks to hear about it a bit. And now that you've introduced yourself, I will give you a proper introduction. So Andy Popkristos is a professor of sociology at Northwestern. Um, prior to that, he was at Yale for a couple of years where I helped recruit him and then immediately left. And then he Thanks was, a, that, he was, a, yeah, you're welcome. I mean, you're doing okay. <laughs> and then he was at UMass for um, what, four or five years before that. So there are sort of two reasons that I wanted to have Andy on the show. The first is, and I'm sure folks who have been listening to each episode have noticed this. I mean, we've really sort of shifted very much in toward translational criminology for the last couple um, episodes before I depart as director. So, Andy, we had Lauren Brinkley Rubenstein on not Great. that long ago, and then we had Tassie McKay, um, oh, yeah. who, who uh, who's actually going to be joining me as a postdoc at Duke. 
um, next year. So I think, you know, you fit within that translational criminology vein. But the thing that's always kind of fascinated me, and this is leading to a question, is, um, you know, just how you manage the tension between doing sort of the best kind of basic science and then also sort of the best translational work that you can do in this really important and difficult area um, for doing translational research. And just before you answer that, one more kind of slight caveat um, is I would say Andy's almost certainly the most prominent criminologist of his five to 10 year cohort. Um and is probably the only criminologist doing translational work of any nature who could get a job in a top 10 social department. There are real sort of unique features. I, I had to promise Andy that I would flatter him on air for 20 seconds before he agreed. So I don't actually mean the things I just said. Um, but, but yeah, how do you, I, I mean, it would be interesting to hear how you kind of manage those tensions? That's actually a great question. And I'm going to keep those compliments and play them over and over again when I'm feeling down, Chris. So at least thanks for <laughs> So all the time. Um, <laughs> all the time. Every morning, I'm going to get up when I have my coffee and just play it. Uh, in the front. But, so what's interesting is where sociology and criminology has kind of come even in our career so far. So when I was starting on this work, you know, I was urged very early on by my advisors at Chicago to just avoid policy conversations, including some of whom who are highly engaged in those conversations themselves these days, in part because it was pitched as not being like scientific or theoretical. I never bought it and I never listened to them. But instead, what I did was make sure that whatever projects I did had real world implications, but also just collected really good data, right? So I think if you can gather lots of, of excellent data, you can, the science is actually then easy, right? So if you are gathering, like for, for the work that we do when we make these social networks of gun violence, you have data on 100,000 individuals and gunshot victimizations going back 20 years situated in time and place. It's a treasure trove of stuff for modeling, for understanding neighborhood effects and ecological effects and net network effects. And so Coming up with that is what we're trained to do. We're actually never trained in sociology, at least, about how to do you know, what you're calling translational work. And in fact, I think there are lots of people that should frankly not do it. Um, I think there are lots of academics that should not be allowed to talk to people. <laughs> I think they should stay <laughs> in their lab and stay in the library. Uh, and in fact, I think they, they can do more damage. But I tend to approach problems or I, more recently I get approached by organizations or cities or departments asking me about a particular question. And what I actually try to do is sit down with them and figure out what that question is that they're trying to answer. So going back to this question about who's going to get shot, I literally gave that answer, right? A 30% chance of being a gang member, you know, most likely to happen in this neighborhood. And like people would just roll their eyes because everybody knows that. <laughs> and I've and, and I've probably published like 10 papers that say that, right? <laughs> but that wasn't the question that the, the, the outreach workers were trying to answer. They really were trying to understand, you know, how can they get ahead of some of these things? How can they figure out where the points of intervention are? And when you have those conversations, you know, when you we spend time building a question with a partner, a research partner, a, a community partner, a policy partner, you know, I, I think it's actually more meaningful. And I think it actually reaps more rewards for science, too, 
the biggest barrier in translational work, especially in sort of the, the criminal justice and crime and criminology space, of course, is trust. And and here I don't mean just between like neighborhoods and police. I actually mean between researchers and community groups, yeah. um, because there's been such a long history of bad relationships between researchers and universities and communities that, you know, if we go in and assume that it's going to be different because I'm me and I'm not like that, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. We have to own responsibility for what our institutions have done. You know, all of the institutions I've been associated with have had long, bad histories with their cities and neighborhoods, University of Chicago and Yale, Northwestern. You know, I think all of these places, you know, have to recognize that and figure out how you're going to do better, you know, and figure out how you're going to sort of change that situation. But community groups have been researched. You know, and they've engaged in research. And so we try to approach translational work by being present and engaged in some of our projects. We co-facilitate focus groups together. We build questions together. We even analyze and do data matching side by side. So not only do we go to the neighborhood, but the neighborhood organizations come to Northwestern and sit in our lab and side by side, we do data matching and build models together. And so we just kind of do that. And it's a process. And unfortunately, in very few grant applications, can you write, we need nine months to build trust. But actually, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about a lot of time trying to understand what the question is, trying to build a question that's meaningful. And then again, I think from the science side, if you're collecting lots of interesting data, there's going to be dozens of opportunities for students to do the sort of standard science. That's great. That's really helpful. And what, I mean, I guess um, I, I realize now I've known you, I don't want to say how long I've known you because it makes both of us <laughs> seem older than I would like us to be. Um, but so I'm, I'm, I've known you for a long time and, and I guess I don't really think about your research as needing introduction, but I guess I... It would be interesting to hear you kind of backtrack a little bit and just talk about what are sort of the two or three questions that you feel like your research is centrally focused on. The most simple question is trying to figure out who's going to get shot and how do we get them not shot. And we do this in a couple of ways. And I say we because, you know, we've launched a, a center here at Northwestern called the Northwestern Neighborhood and Network Initiative, or N3 for short. And what we really try to do is integrate um, network science and neighborhood science, you know, into these sorts of community-driven questions. All of our research is engaged. And so, you know, we spend our time working with about 12 different street outreach organizations in Chicago, which are groups that hire formerly incarcerated or people who have been impacted by gun violence to try to interrupt violence, kind of work as frontline outreach workers. Um, so we're evaluating this work and trying to understand their lives and careers. We're working on a neighborhood policing initiative, a new one in Chicago, a pilot program. And we're working on a bunch of research on police misconduct and trying to figure out which police officers are involved in shooting and use of force. But all three of these projects start from the premise that people's networks, who they're connected to, affect what they feel, think, and do. And we approach these network questions not just quantitatively using administrative data, but we also we have longitudinal interviews, we have observational data, and we really try to understand where the commonalities across these spaces too. So why is it that police officers that occupy a certain position are more likely to shoot somebody? And then young men in the neighborhood that occupy a certain position, the same kind of position network are also more likely to engage in violence. So, so there's a lot of common themes that are very sort of human, very core part of how we understand the world we live in. Um, and we're trying to understand them and tease them out in different contexts. That's helpful. Thanks. And I apologize both to the listeners and to Andy. Um, 
if you heard thumping and screaming, um, my middle child has taught my toddler how to jump from piece of furniture to piece of furniture during the pandemic. And so every once in a while, you will hear like a thud. Um, and then it, it's followed shortly thereafter by a scream. So I apologize if if you heard a thud and then a scream. Um, so I, I guess I just want to ask you one more question, I think, before we wrap up. And I guess the thing I would ask is, how do you talk to graduate students about doing this sort of work and how do you advise them in that direction or in a different direction? That's a really good question, too. The first thing I do as I think about you know my approach to, to mentoring and teaching, but specifically with graduate students, is I always try to make sure they understand that it's not a, it's not an either or. Do you need to do science or policy work or if you choose like sort of pure, more pure science approach, that's fine. Or if you choose a more sort of directly uh, policy work, that's also fine. But what I'm trained to teach people to do is how to do that as a social scientist. And so I think what I'm seeing more and more these days, and it's something that I think uh, has always been there, but I think we talk about it more, is what do we do if your findings don't fit your politics or your mm. priors, right? And so just to give an example, you know, I do a lot of work on gun policy. and when people will call me and ask me about, say, an assault weapons ban, well, I actually, there's not a lot of evidence that suggests an assault weapons ban work, but I personally support the idea. So I can't say as a scientist that it works when the evidence says it doesn't, but at the same time, we still need to figure out ways to study it. And so I try to use examples like that with my students or, or more simply ask them, like, will you accept the null hypothesis? Right. What if what you think works doesn't work? And what are you going to do with that information? Um, and it's important to have that conversation from design to results, right? At sort of every stage interrogating, you know, what you're finding. Is it working? Is it not working? Do you have the right data? Are you asking good questions? And I actually think the thing I really try to work most with on students is asking good questions. Right. And so for me, a lot of uh, social science and science ends up more like a game of Jeopardy, where you're working backwards because you have these nuggets of insights and you're trying to figure out, is it answering this question or what is the question it's answering? And then you kind of have to reiterate it. Right. So this, this very rarely do you have a straight line process from the original question you asked to data collection to findings and so on when you're doing this sort of engaged work. You know, we were doing a bunch of evaluation work, then COVID hit. So, you know, how's that going to affect neighborhood level crime rates? How do we tease that out? You know, those are things that happen in a less dramatic sense all the time. But, you know, this most recent example gives us a, you know, a way to kind of, again, kind of reframe it. So I just try to make sure students are asking those questions. And by the way, if they can't, if they can't separate some of the things that are around, uh, you know, whether it's advocacy work or policy work or political work from the sort of scientific questions they're asking, then I try to think about other questions they could be asking that are just as meaningful, but they might be less personally invested in. Um, and I think there's there's a sweet spot that you can do both, of course. Obviously, I'm deeply, I've been deeply impacted by gun violence and I study gun violence. I've had to struggle with results that I didn't expect in my career. I've had to struggle with what to do with them and how to present them. I've had to bring bad news to community partners and, and political partners like all the time, and it's never easy. But what I find is if you're honest and kind of continue to act that way, people will at least take what you're saying as being uh, scientifically valid, which is ultimately the goal as a social scientist. The other thing I'll say is I often con contrast and compare, especially when we're doing this engaged work, you know, um, a lot of the frontline advocates 
their role is not to be wrong <laughs> in the way that scientists are trying to be wrong, right? We're trying to prove ourselves wrong. That's what the review process does. It's horrible, but it's kind of what we're trying to do as we, you know, interrogate our findings. But advocates have to be on the front line, putting their lives on there, putting themselves out there in ways that um, I don't think we academics always appreciate. So I think as we appreciate that, we need to understand that our work, uh, how our work can help that and amplify it. And one way we do that is by doing our science and helping them understand and improve whatever it's a program or an approach or an initiative and, and try to make sure that those things get, um, get again, I, we often talk a lot about amplifying the voices of those that are our partners. Yeah, it totally makes sense. It's it's an interesting, I mean, it's a tension I've been thinking about a bunch lately, which is just, you know, it feels like social science often folks have ethical positions and then they go in search of data that scientifically supports those positions. Um, right. And I mean, it does seem like sometimes you should just be able to accept that they might lead you in different places. That you might have an ethical preference for one thing, but the social science shows something else. I think that's right. I also think one of the things we struggle with in Chicago in particular these days, but it's, it's really something that's changed as we have more data available in the world, is the literacy around sort of science and data is not where it could be or should be. It's clearly not always at the sort of level. So, for example, in Chicago, I see a lot of people you know, chasing the day's murder tallies. Right. And so someone will come on the news or I'll get an email that says, hey, this is the sixth bloodiest Friday since Al Capone's daughter's cotillion. What do you think? <laughs> right. And, and what what how do you make sense of that? <laughs> like, how do you explain to them? Well, like, I can't verify that. and not sure what that tells you, <laughs> you know, or as we think about explaining trends in crime, which is which is, as you know, tricky to do. Sure. Um, because the most common metric used in the media is, of course, year-to-date statistics. And so right now, again, in Chicago, gun violence hasn't gone down like other crime has gone down during COVID. But last year, we had the polar vortex. So, right. you know, it's like, how are you comparing these points and the constant sort of reiteration of, of how you even do translation? Forget about doing the sorts of science we train graduate students to do. But in fact, how are you as a, as a you know, someone who is trained in these methods trying to do better in this space, whether it's about visualizations or talking about rates versus numbers. Like, there's some simple things I think that we as social scientists can and should continue to do. And often that's a great place to start with students as well, right, in their training, which is make sure that they are really versed in these sort of debates. Because oftentimes what will happen too is criminologists or sociologists will just stop talking to the press or stop talking to policymakers because they get tired of saying year-to-date statistics suck. Right. Rather than telling folks, like again, in Chicago, I like to remind people that gangs don't hit reset on January 1st. It's not like <laughs> disputes die on December 31st. Like right. that's not how time works. But um, I often find that that tends to be ways to really get students to start thinking in ways that they can translate their skills sort of net of their priors, you know, whether it's, again, their policy priors or, or other sorts of things they might have. Well, that strikes me as a very good closing point. So thanks so much for being willing to join us on my last episode of doing translational research, Andy. Uh, I'm looking oh, forward to the pandemic ending and getting to see you in person again. That's the same. And by then I'll have changed my middle name to Voldemort. <laughs> One could only hope. Thanks, Chris. All right. Thanks, Andy.
For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.